So how do you top a first season where the main villain was an intergalactic demon with a cult doing his bidding with Deathstroke, ladies and gentlemen? Let's get into this review. Welcome to Geekology 101. My name is Diego, and I'm so itching to get into this review of Titan Season 2. Uh, but before I do, let me uh, clear up a couple of points. Number one, everything that I say in this review of Titan Season 2 is assuming that you've already seen Titan Season 1. So nothing that I say, even within the spoiler-free section for Season 2, is going to be spoiling anything from Season 1 for you. So it's assuming that you've watched Season 1. Number two... It's assuming that uh, you've hopefully listened to episode 55 of our podcast where I reviewed season one in detail. So parting from those two points, I will give you a warning when the spoiler discussion is about to begin. Um, but again, if you haven't seen season one, this isn't the episode you should be jumping on. Uh, go to episode 55 where I talk about that. Now, another thing that I want to uh, point out in my haste to review season one of Teen Titans, of Titans rather, I hopped straight from my TV over to record the review for season one. I completely missed the after credit scene <laughs> at the end of the last episode of season one, which of course introduces one of the main characters for season two, and that is Connor, Superboy, escaping from the Cadmus Laboratories. So, very important piece that I missed. I actually ended up catching it when I went to re-watch a few things from the end of Season 1 in preparation for watching Season 2. And I almost kicked myself for having missed that the first time around. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to speak about Connor within the spoiler-free section because, again, he was introduced in the after credit scene of Season 1. So I'm not spoiling anything that you wouldn't have seen in Season 2. All right, um, let's get into this thing. So, uh, again, spoiler-free for now, okay? Here are some of the things that I loved about this show. I loved Connor. I loved that character. I loved what he added to the season. I feel like he was a much-needed break from some other storylines that, frankly, started getting very, very heavy. So I love this character, especially the episode when he's finally given some love uh, and some attention. It was fantastic. And he really does bring along this other lore, this other um, side of the DC universe that we really hadn't seen mentioned yet in Titans. So that was really cool. I love that. Um, Deathstroke. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. How could you not love Deathstroke, especially when he is done right? And Deathstroke, with the exception of some stuff that happens at the end of the season, which I'll get to in the spoiler territory, man, did they get him right. Um, if you've read Deathstroke in the comics, if you've seen him in cartoon movies, you know that Deathstroke is essentially like an evil version of Batman. This guy is a strategist. He is a master thinker. He outsmarts heroes. 
those whom he can't defeat by force and by skill, by physical dexterity, he outsmarts. And we see that here. We see him from the from the first moment that we see him take on take action. He's strategizing, and he is one or more moves ahead of the Titan. So, Deathstroke, I can safely say, was my favorite part of season two of Titans. The Nightwing suit, which we finally get to see Dick evolve into his new persona. Of course, if you saw season one, you know that a big deal of his story arc was who he needed to become. Who was he now that he was no longer Robin? Who was he now that he wasn't under Batman's shadow? His own evolution, walking towards a new version of himself, and a version, of course, that was still crime-fighting because he couldn't deny that instinct inside of him to protect the innocent and to go and make a difference. So seeing him finally take on the mantle of Nightwing and the way in which it was hinted at and introduced throughout Season 2, it doesn't happen right away. It happens pretty late into the season. Uh, but I think that it was beautiful, the way that they kind of gave it its own mythology almost. Um, so I love that, him becoming Nightwing. Um, there is a, speaking of Nightwing, there is something introduced in this, uh, <laughs> in this season of Titans that I, I at least haven't seen before, not in the comics or in cartoons or anything like that. So I think it's original for this show. And that is Stu's handmade shoes. <laughs> and this is, uh, a storefront that looks like it's a shoe shop, a custom shoe shop. When in reality, it's a front for superhero armor and suit manufacturing, which I think is super cool. This is, it feels like something pulled out from the John Wick universe or the Kingsman universe. It's freaking cool, man. I really, I really love it. And of course, we see that come into play when Nightwing's suit finally makes an appearance. So I thought that was really cool. Jason Todd's character development in this in this uh, season of Titans, we saw Jason Todd introduced in the first in the first season of Titans. Because I hadn't really spoiled anything from my from myself about the show, when I saw him come into into uh, into play in the first season, it caught me off guard. It completely caught me by surprise. And the character that they showed us, his his character traits, were so on point with the character traits and tendencies that I know of Jason Todd from the comics that he was one of the most satisfying things for me about season one. And that continues to be the case in season two. I really love where he's left off by the end of the season. I feel like they're really setting up even more character evolution for him. And I can't wait to see more. Um, what did I not like? I think that season two suffered from way too many storylines. And unfortunately, some of them really felt like unnecessary storylines altogether. Storylines that probably didn't need to get told at all at any point in the show. And then some that likely should have been held off for future seasons. I think that it made the second season feel convoluted. It made the se the second season feel packed, stuffed in in a negative way. It didn't allow for sufficient space 
for what I was looking forward to, which was the development of this new team. You know, the team that we saw come together in season one, the team of misfits, of people who had no place to call home, who had no sense of belonging or family, uh, no sense of stability, and who came together by the end of the season with a common purpose. I, I wanted to see more of that. I wanted to see more of that team develop, and I wanted to see more attention and more time during season two dedicated to that team. And instead, we started seeing so many interwoven storylines uh, that just, I don't know, they, they, they really watered down what I wanted to see as a main story for, for, uh, for these characters. In that same vein, um, there was retconning that happened in this second season of Titans. And retconning is a very, very delicate place to go. Especially when you had success with the first season. If you have a first season that people truly loved, and then in season two you come and you introduced, you introduced some things that change what we knew to be the reality of this of the world of this show from the first season. Oh man, that's really risky. And they absolutely did that. Um, it did take me a couple of episodes to get past that. Um, and uh, man, I I could have done without it, to be honest. Um, I eventually got used to it. Uh, I eventually got to maybe even appreciate some of the aspects that came out as a result of the retconning. But again, I, I don't know if it was absolutely necessary. And I'll get into more details in the spoiler discussion. Uh, a couple of more things that I really wasn't feeling too much. Uh, Bruce Wayne. So in season one, Batman is a faceless figure, basically. Batman is a figure that is alluded to constantly because, of course, one of the main characters is Dick Grayson, who has now been uh, out from under Batman's shadow for about five years. So he's still wearing the Robin costume because it's really all he's got to fight crime, but he's no longer under Batman's uh, tutelage. And we see him mentioning Bruce Wayne and constantly battling with this shadow that follows him, that haunts him, of Batman over him. And we even see in one of the final episodes of the season, we see this illusion that is created by Trigon, by... Uh, Raven's uh, dad, uh, father, who basically tricks Dick into this fake scenario, making him believe that he's back in Gotham City and that he has to fight Batman and take down Batman. And we get to see Batman in the costume. We get to see some glimpses of him, but never fully head on. We never get to really see any details of the face. And in this season, we finally get introduced to Bruce Wayne with a face. Now, I wanted to see Bruce Wayne. I wanted to see Batman. And I love the actor that they chose to play Batman. I love the actor, Ian Glenn, who played, um, uh, I forget the character's name, but who played a, a pretty important character in the series Game of Thrones. And although I loved him in that role in Game of Thrones... I cannot stomach him as Bruce Wayne 
in the Titan series. I simply can't. It was for several reasons, which I'll get to in the spoiler discussion, because it has to do a bit with the overall story for Dick Grayson. So I'll leave it at that. I I love that actor, but I really, really hated him for this role. I, I, I don't think it was a good fit at all. So that was pretty disappointing because we got to see a lot of him in that role throughout season two. <clears throat> there were a couple of deaths that <laughs> I wasn't necessarily sure why they had to happen. Um, and I'm going to get into the rest in, uh, in the spoiler discussion. So overall, I like this season. Overall, I think it was a good season two. Good. Not great. Not amazing. I think that season one was great. If I have to give a star rating out of five stars to season one, I would have given it four out of five stars. And honestly, one of the only reasons why I'd give it a four out of five stars and not a four and a half or even a five star, because I truly, truly loved that season, is because of the awkward ending that the season had with an unfinished story. The entire season was building to this reveal of Trigon and to this final battle between this newly formed group, this newly formed team, and Trigon. And due to whatever drama it is that happened behind the scenes, this first season got truncated, it got cut, and what should have been the finale of season one ended up playing out as the first episode of season two, for whatever reason. So the what they attempted to do in the form of a cliffhanger really didn't work as a cliffhanger in my eyes, especially because of how anticlimactic the first episode of season two felt. So for that reason, because of the awkward ending, for that reason, I give uh, season one of Titans a four out of five stars. Um, season two, it, it comes down in quality. Absolutely. It's undeniable to me. And I give it a three out of five stars. Three out of five stars means it's it's good. It's enjoyable. Go watch it. I recommend it, especially if you saw season one. Um, is it great? No, it wasn't great for several reasons that I'll get into in spoilers. Um, so having said that, this is your spoiler warning. I am about to get into spoiler territory, free discussion regarding Titans season two. If you have not seen Titans season two and you're planning to get into Titan season two, I highly recommend that you pause this episode now and that you come back to it whenever you finish season two. So Having said that, spoiler warning, people, for Titans Season 2. Welcome to Spoilerland, people. Let's get into this thing. Now, I'm going to start off by breaking down what I can only describe as the multiple stories within Season 2 of Titans. And I feel like this is the only way that I can logically break this thing down because there were so many storylines happening all at once, some of which honestly should not have existed, uh, others that possibly could have played out in further seasons, future seasons of Titans. And uh, if I try to explain the events of the show sequentially, it's I'm going to get lost. It's, it's, it's really tough to follow. So I, I feel like this is the best place for me to... Um, to, to explain it. So the first story is unfortunately a story that should have been concluded in season one, which is the, the whole Trigon battle and the Trigon battle basically, basically takes place in the first episode of season two. Um, 
very, I don't know, awkward episode. I mean, Trigon basically gets into all of the heroes' minds. He tricks them each into playing out a scenario, a, a made-up scenario in their mind where they're forced to choose whether to do good or to give in to their own darkness. They each end up giving in to their own darkness, which basically results in all of them, their eyes turning black for whatever reason and becoming evil and starting to do his bidding, trying to catch Gar and Raven or Rachel, who are the ones left without being controlled yet. In that entire process, um, we end up seeing Gar rescue Rachel, who is starting to get controlled. And then just by reminding her that they're buddies, <laughs> the power of friendship, uh, she eventually breaks through the spell. And then she goes and she basically does the same for Dick. Again, reminding him, hey, you made me a promise. You were always going to be there for me. You know, you love me. We're family, blah, blah, blah. And eventually, you know, he breaks free out of it. And then she goes on to basically walk right through the others who are still being controlled by Trigon. They don't do a thing to stop her. And she walks right up to Trigon, who has now assumed his demon form and has begun to... I don't know exactly what he's doing. He's transforming the world. Uh, slowly, it seems like he's repainting it into like a gray, dark color or something of that sort. He's basically making things wither away. Uh, and it seems like his plan was to stand there outside of this farmhouse in wherever this place was and just keep on pumping out his negative energies or whatever until the entire earth was covered in, in withering everything. I, it, it was strange. I, I really, I gotta be honest. That was, it was such an anticlimactic ending to the entire thing that we saw set up for Trigon in season one. Rachel ends up defeating him. He basically, all right. So his whole thing was that he had to break her heart, right? That was the the prophecy needed to be fulfilled. She needed to become the gate through which he was going to walk into our realm. And to, to do so, he needed to break her heart. And he broke her heart basically by like turning her best friends, the only people that were her allies, against her. And then he literally pulls out her heart after she walks out to meet him out in front of the farmhouse. He literally pulls out her heart. And crushes her heart. And out of her heart comes this red gem. Which he then encrusts into her forehead. Becoming the iconic gem crystal thing. That she has. That, that the character Raven always has in the comics. And in the cartoon show. And the cartoon movies and all that. And then she just manages to overpower him. Somehow, and she kind of like traps him, and and then she that that's it. That that's essentially where that whole thing ends. She frees the others from the spell, and so that's where the storyline of Trigon from season one ends. Again, very weird, very anticlimactic. Um, I don't know. It just it, it felt a little bit like lazy writing, to be honest. Lazy storytelling. It, it just I don't know. It wasn't compelling. He seemed like such a huge threat, but. In the end, his defeat was way too simple. 
So then that ends, and then we fast forward. I think it's a couple of months or something like that, and uh, now the team Titan, the Titans, are in the tower, Titans Tower. Okay, now here I got to talk, of course, about the retconning, which I mentioned in the spoiler-free section. We we were under the assumption throughout the entire first season of the show that this was the first team of Titans coming together, that these people that were these misfits that were grouping up, that were teaming up and finding a family in each other were going to be the first iteration of the Titans. But season two proves us wrong. Season two changes basically the past and tells us that there was already a first version of the Titans team. This is a fact that is never mentioned in season one. It's never even hinted at in season one, especially not the people that compose the team. So the people who are now in this retconned past, uh, who were the original Titans, are Dick Grayson as Robin, uh, Donna Troy as Wonder Wonder Girl, Aqualad, Hawk, and Dove. And first of all, of course, we never heard of Aqualad mentioned before, you know, in, in season one. Donna Troy, we saw plenty of her, but we saw her in a capacity that I personally liked a great deal, which was this former sidekick to Wonder Woman who decided to drop the whole cape and cow thing and go off and become a, an average citizen who was trying to make a difference through, I think it was like photographic journalism or something like that. And I like that. I like the fact that she gave up the whole crime fighting gig to try to fight crime in a different way. You know, I thought it was really neat. And I love the relationship that they established between her and Dick. It wasn't anything romantic and never even crossed into that territory. They were just really good friends because of course, if anybody's ever followed the, you know, like the old justice league cartoons or the comic books, Batman and wonder woman have a thing going on. They have a romance in a lot of instances. And so they play off of that in season one, and they let us know that Bruce and Diana um, spent some time together. And because they spent time together, Donna Troy and Dick Grayson ended up spending time together as well, being their respective sidekicks. Now, it's never mentioned in any way that Donna Troy and Dick Grayson went off and formed their own crime-fighting team called the Titans. Uh, and then, then there's Hawk and Dove. Hawk and Dove not only... Did we never get any indication that they were part of, the, of a Titans team, of a first iteration of a Titans team? But we actually get hints at the fact that Bruce Wayne was never in agreement with Dick Grayson going and crime fighting alongside Hawk and Dove. Because Hawk and Dove were kind of the low grade of the crime fighting levels. They were painted as almost being a bad influence for Dick Grayson. So Dick Grayson had to escape. Gotham City sneak off to go and crime fight with Hawk and Dove, which, and all these things are being, they're basically told to us in season one. And Bruce Wayne didn't like that. Now, in season two, not only are Hawk and Dove um, founding members of the first iterations of the Titans, but the Titans themselves as a team, as a squad, are completely funded by Bruce Wayne. 
Bruce Wayne is the one that supplies Titan's Tower in San Francisco. Titan's Tower runs completely on Wayne Tech. Titan's Tower is funded. Their food, their groceries, everything. They don't have to worry about a damn thing. They basically make that very clear in Season 2. This place practically runs itself, Dick Grayson says at a certain point. So what you've got basically is a big contradiction here where not only is now in Season 2 um, the reality that Hawk and Dove were part of uh, a first iteration of a Titans team, but that they were actually okayed by Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne was the one funding this entire operation. So um, as I mentioned before, retconning is a very, very delicate thing. And um, it took me a bit to get past this, to be able to just uh, embrace the new reality for what it was, understanding that moving forward, this is going to be the official past of the show. And, and I was okay with it. I was okay with it until some of the nine stories that I'm mentioning uh, started playing out. All right. Story number two is basically the plot of Deathstroke. So Deathstroke, um, we see him at first. He breaks out Dr. Light. Dr. Light is a low-grade villain, I guess. I, I haven't seen him before. I didn't read too many Teen Titans, Teen Titan comics. Uh, and I never seen him in any other storyline. My first time being introduced to him, but he definitely has a past in the comics, an origin in the comics. So Deathstroke breaks out Doctor Light from prison, and he does it because he knows that Doctor Light will bring out, will draw out the old team of Titans. Uh, again, strategic thinking, right? He also infiltrates the Titans with his daughter Rose. We see an entire backstory where <clears throat> Rose has no clue who her dad is, and then eventually she finds out. Um, her mom eventually tells her. She goes and seeks him out. He basically kind of brushes her off and tells her that she needs to go, and that, she, that if she ever shows up to see him again, that he's going to have to kill her. And then he, I guess, feels remorse, which not really. He has a plan. He goes back, appears into her life, appears in her life again, and invites her to go be with him. She agrees, she starts living with him, and he basically takes her in for the sole purpose of training her and making her into a weapon. So he trains her in all the best ways that he knows how to, and he gives her this female Deathstroke, Lady Deathstroke persona. And she then uses her, or he then uses her to infiltrate the Titans by pretending to be running away from him. And he knows studying the psychological profile of Dick Grayson, having interacted with him, thanks to the retconned past, <laughs> uh, having interacted with him as in, in the previous events of Titans, he understands that Dick Grayson will have a weakness for strays, for super-powered individuals or very skilled individuals, young people, who don't have a home, who don't have safety, and who are running for their lives. He knows that he'll respond to that. So sure enough, she appears in the news. She's running away. Dick sees her. Immediately, he shows up to try to help her. He takes her in, and he basically puts her to live right there uh, with the rest of the Titans in Titans Tower. So uh, now Deathstroke has an infiltrated element inside of the Titans. He basically, uh, Deathstroke ends up basically breaking them apart. He breaks the Titans apart through strife. And I'll detail some of the other uh, reasons how uh, that of how he, he achieves that. 
later on down the road, he blames Dick Grayson for the death of his son. His son is a guy called Jericho. This is a son that he has with a different woman, not the same uh, person, the same woman that he conceived Rose with. This is a different woman. So Deathstroke, you know, he got around. And he also knows his son, Jericho, from afar. Because he's constantly, at the beginning, he's part of the military, secret operations, the whole deal. They experiment on him to turn him into a kind of super soldier. He ends up finally being released from the army. And when he gets home, he barely gets to spend time with his son before he takes on his entire assassin persona. And now he's gone for you know months at a time or whatever because he's going off fulfilling his contracts as, a, as an assassin. So his son holds a lot of resentment against them. And uh, in one of the instances where they are together, Deathstroke discovers that his son has an ability. Because of the fact that Deathstroke got experimented on uh, in the military, his genetics passed on certain abilities to his son. And his son's ability is the capability of jumping, his consciousness jumping from his body into another person's body and essentially taking over that person's mind. So he has that ability. Deathstroke knows it. Deathstroke is trying to take down the Titans. Um, actually, he just has a contract that he has to carry out, and he accidentally kills one of the Titans, Aqualad. And because of that, Dick Grayson goes after him. He finds him. They fight in the church. In the middle of the fight, Jericho comes in. He tries to save Dick Grayson. Deathstroke stabs him uh, by mistake his son. And then right before he dies, he manages to hop his consciousness into Deathstroke. So um, that's basically the whole beef that Deathstroke blames Dick Grayson for, you know, tricking him or forcing him to kill his own son by mistake. Uh, and now he wants to make Dick Grayson pay, not by killing him, but by making him lose his family. So his entire strategy is, the goal of it is to break up the Titans from, from within so that the Titans are no more. And it comes to a point where he tells Dick Grayson, if you ever reform the Titans, if you ever regroup them, I will kill every single one of you. What Dick doesn't know at the time is that uh, Jericho, his son, Deathstroke's son, is living inside of him. His consciousness is inside of him. Now, the only reason why Jericho hasn't been able to take over Deathstroke's mind is because very similar to Batman, Deathstroke has trained his mind to ridiculous degrees to the point where he essentially is capable of trapping Jericho's consciousness inside of his own brain in this construct that he builds. It's a room, a white room. All the furniture, the walls, the ceiling, the floor, everything is white. And there's these big windows that Jericho tries to exit through to take control of uh, Deathstroke's body, of Slade Wilson's body, but he can't because Deathstroke's mind is way too trained. It's too rigid. It's too strong. And uh, so there, it's revealed eventually that they've been in that struggle constantly. And Jericho almost takes control of him in certain instances, but he's never able fully to do it. Uh, Dick Grayson does eventually find out that this is the case, that Jericho is still alive, his consciousness at least is still alive, and it is inside of Deathstroke's brain, or Deathstroke's body rather. Eventually, Rose turns against Slade. 
Uh, she turns against her father because she realizes, number one, that he has like torn apart the Titans. Number two, he realizes that she realizes that these people are not bad people. And number three, uh, she ends up falling in love with Jason Todd. Um, also, she just doesn't like Slade Wilson. So, yeah, she turns on him and refuses to continue cooperating with him to bring down the Titans from within. That is essentially the the Deathstroke storyline, and I'll get to his ending a little bit later. That's story number two, folks, okay? These are a lot of events <laughs> just from this one storyline, okay? And now, don't get me wrong. To me, Deathstroke storyline, this second story, I think is one of the two strongest stories in season two. I think that the Slade Wilson Deathstroke storyline should have been a standalone thing. That should have been the whole main plot of this season, in my opinion. He should have been the main villain from beginning to end because they painted him as such a badass villain, as such a heavy hitter of a villain. And he is in the comics, in games, in cartoons, in movie, in cartoon movies everywhere. Deathstroke is one of the most effective villains in the DC universe. And I think that he should have been granted the space of a of singular villain for this entire thing. As a matter of fact, having come off of season one with a whole lot of mystical stuff, okay, uh, the whole Trigon thing, the followers of Trigon, all the stuff related to Raven's powers and all this, her losing control, all of that that dealt more with the supernatural would have been perfectly balanced by the more strategic military tactics of Slade Wilson. He should have carried this entire thing as a villain. And I feel like if they would have left it that way, he would have been able, they would have been able to introduce even more pawns, even more chess pieces for Slade Wilson to play with to completely uh, mess up the Titans. But unfortunately, that was not the case. Story number three that played out throughout the second season was Superboy. Connor. Um, again, we saw Connor escaping from the Cadmus Laboratories in the after credit sequence of season one, we basically pick up in the same exact spot with him. We see him again, breaking out. He breaks out crypto, the dog. And he, uh, this is one of, <laughs> it was one of my favorite episodes in the entire season. It was such a needed break from the heaviness and the slow pace of everything else that was going on with a lot of drama with the old Titans and all that. Man, when this episode came around, it was, for me, it was so well-received. It was a breath of fresh air. It was comedic. It was lighthearted. <clears throat> His innocence, because, of course, this dude was kind of literally born yesterday, and he had the consciousness. I think it's said in the show that he had the mental maturity of a three-year-old or a four-year-old or something like that. And, and you could tell, you know, he was basically discovering the world for the very first time when he broke out of that facility. And so we see him, you know, discovering what outside life is like. So that in itself is very whimsical. It's, it's beautiful. It was great. I love that. To add on to that positively, he is starting to discover himself internally. 
And he's starting to discover through uh, interrogating certain people who work for Cadmus, he's starting to discover that he is, of course, the clone of Superman and Lex Luthor. Now, this is significant, of course, because in season one, we saw this concept of the main characters of Titans battling between their light and dark natures. And we saw how difficult it was for Raven and for uh, Dick Grayson and for uh, even for Gar and for Starfire to battle with that darkness within, with the base instincts that took them to several of them commit atrocities, right? Commit things that they deeply, deeply regret. Now, this is kind of continued in the introduction of this new character, Connor, Superboy, in the sense that his natures are even more clearly defined because he is half Lex Luthor, half Clark Kent. I mean, talk about opposites, right? And so the interesting, though, the interesting thing is that not only does he carry the good traits from one and the bad traits from the other, but also vice versa. So he also carries the intelligence, the high intelligence of Lex Luthor, for instance. And we see that play out in some instances during the show, during the second season. Um, now, he ends up eventually, uh, as he's running away, he ends up discovering this character who was the, the, the scientist who helped create him or who who was the lead scientist, at least, I think, creating him. And he ends up kind of adopting her as a mother figure because he figures, okay, I have two dads and you must be my mom, right? And so she eventually uh, succumbs to that. And uh, she, you know, she can't fight it anymore. She tells him, you can call me mom. And uh, he eventually ends up crossing paths with the Titans by saving Jason Todd, who is falling off a building. And I'll get into why he's falling off a building in a minute, even though those of you who have seen the series already know. But um, I think this entire that entire episode where he's introduced is very key. It's awesome. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. Now, um, when he rescues Jason Todd, right at that moment, Cadmus has been hunting him for a bit. And they finally catch up to him. They shoot him with a kryptonite bullet. It actually pierces through, knocks him out. The Titans take him over to Titans Tower. They're trying to help him. They're trying to revive him. Needles won't go into him because his, he's Kryptonian. Um, so it's very difficult. They're trying to save him, but it's very hard. And uh, I think it was Donna Troy who was the one that cracked the code. She basically said, okay, here's what needs to happen. If he is half Kryptonian, he needs solar energy to be able to survive this thing. Now, of course, how do you carry him over to you know the sun? Well, you've got a little sun right here <laughs> in your midst in the form of Starfire who has solar power, basically. And um, so she hugs him and just goes full supernova. And uh, her solar energy, her solar power revives him and he comes back to life. Or at least he's stable, but he's still kind of like in a coma. He's still passed out. Uh, eventually, Gar finds himself alone in Titan's Tower and he's basically serving as custodian for Connor, who is still passed out. He eventually wakes up, though, and he and Gar end up striking up a friendship. And they play some video games, and Gar realizes, like, this guy's really sharp. He's actually very intelligent. He picks up things super quickly. Um, and, of course, he's super powered, right? He's half Superman. So he decides to take him outside and to show him the ropes, to show him how the world works. And so now Connor is back out in the streets, but this time he has a guide in the form of Gar. And uh, Gar is basically starting to train him, telling him it's just like a video game, basically. You hear the cries for help, you go and you help. You take out the bad guys. 
Um, what ends up happening is that things go wrong. He ends up instead fighting a bunch of cops who start shooting at him, and that gets him into trouble. Eventually, they both end up in the custody back in back in the custody of Cadmus. And uh, man, <laughs> the we don't get to see what they do to Connor, which I think is a flaw in the season. We don't get to see what happens to him, but we later on find out that they basically reconditioned him. They, they, they you know, sort of like brainwashed him uh, to be an obedient weapon. Gar, however, we definitely get to see what they do to Gar. Jumping back to season one, during that asylum episode, we get to see Gar being prodded at like an animal. The same episode that we saw Starfire getting cut up in surgery and uh, dissected sort of like an animal. The same one where we saw them break Dick Grayson's mind in horrible ways. Gar, I felt so sorry for the guy because they really were treating him like an animal. And of course, there's this, this whole theme with him of being Beast Boy, you know? And in this season, when he gets captured by Cadmus, the crap that they do to him is so sad. I mean... Open brain surgery, prodding and picking, basically figuring out what makes them tick and what makes them turn into that tiger creature. They eventually end up reprogramming him as well, and they end up using him as bait. They unleash him into a Starbucks in his in his human form, and they condition him to react to classical music playing. It wasn't necessarily a Starbucks; it was a coffee shop. So when the classical music starts playing. That triggers his brain because, again, they prodded and stuck all sorts of needles into his brain. It was horrible. And um, it triggers him. He turns into a tiger, kills a couple of people. Eventually, they bring him back into the truck, into the cabin truck. He turns back into human form. And the guy is just shaking. Like, dude, I felt so bad. I really, really legitimately felt bad for this character. He is by far, I think, one of the more innocent ones in the entire series. He's one of the more noble ones. And for some reason, he's one of the ones that keeps on suffering the worst fates so far in both seasons. Now, I don't, I don't understand why, man. I really, really felt for the guy. It was horrible. So, yeah, that happens as a result of that entire uh, Connor storyline. Now, uh, story number four. Story number four is this whole thing with the old Titans. And this is this is one of the things that made it extremely difficult for me to get used to this retconning of the past, of introducing us, shoving into the past now that there was a first iteration of the Titans team. Because the, the, the flashbacks I was fine with, introducing us to Aqualad, uh, Aqualad falling in love with uh, with Donna Troy. Donna Troy not want not knowing what to do, whether to follow her destiny and travel to Temescura, um to train over there with Wonder Woman and the Amazonians, or whether to stay on on Earth and uh, you know fall explore her love with uh, with Aqualad. She didn't know what to do. She was about to get on the plane to go to Themyscira. Aqualad shows up to basically declare his undying love to her and to beg her to stay, but, you know, to kind of let her go if she chose to leave. And just as that's happening, Deathstroke shows up hiding from behind a vehicle or something like that, and he had a contract 
for the woman who was the representative of Themyscira on Earth or in our dimension. And just as she's standing there, Deathstroke shoots and Aqualad turns just in time to catch the bullet in his own chest and the dude dies. So I thought that that story was fine. You know, felt a little bit sappy, his, you know, blind love and obsession with her. But hey, you know, that kind of thing happens in life and I'm okay with it. Even Donna Troy's confusion, her duality, do I go to Temescura? Do I follow that that is supposed to be my destiny or do I follow love? Even that whole thing, that whole um, dilemma that she was in, I'm okay with that. I really have, uh, I really have no, no beef with that. What I do have beef with is everything we saw happening in the present of the story. And that was this uh, constant pouting, negativity, just uh, drawn out, very drawn out drama between the old school titans. It took up several episodes. It was honestly boring to watch at times. I feel like that entire storyline could have been explored in one or two episodes and we could have moved past it. Honestly, I feel like this was one of the main faults of this retconning. The fact that they <clears throat> they allowed it to eat up so much screen time during season two. And so much of it was slow and boring and drawn out and melodramatic and too much pouting and too much brooding. It just, it was too much. It was too much. I, I legitimately just kind of tuned out uh, th this whole drama. I, I couldn't wait to get past it. And we, uh, we stole screen time from what I consider to be the more important story, which are the new Titans. The ones that we fell in love with during season one. The ones that we were sold on during season one. The ones that we were overjoyed to finally see come together, to finally see step into Titan Tower, uh, Titan's Tower, to finally have a safe space of their own, some structure. We didn't get to see that barely. And that was all due to the fact that the old Titans completely stole the show and not in the positive way. That was a very disappointing part to me about this entire season. Um, I really wish that they would have, fine, do your retconning, but solve the drama of the past in the first, in the well, not the first, because the first season, the first episode, unfortunately, was closing the, the events of season one, but solve the drama of the past in episode two and episode three and be done with it. Move forward. Let us focus on the new Titans. Move that storyline forward. We got something more interesting at hand, which is, how these new team members are going to deal with their first legitimate threat um, after you know assuming the role of Titans, which is Deathstroke, and how to adapt to this newcomer in the form of Connor of Superboy, right? Because that's another thing that they have to get used to. How does this Superman-like creature form part of them now? How do they help him adapt? And how do they adapt to him? And more importantly, how do they all together work as a unit? You know, battle as a unit. All these aspects I would have preferred for 
to have stolen to have taken more of the screen time during season two. But unfortunately, we got much more pouting than I consider was necessary. Um, in this storyline, which again, this is story number four, uh, we basically see the drama of the old Titans, of the OG Titans, break the spirits of the new Titans because the new Titans are starting to feel like, okay, wait, what just happened? You know, we go through all this drama in season one with Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson brings us to the safe haven now. And suddenly all these old faces are popping up and we're nothing now, <laughs> you know, secrets are being kept from us. We're not being kept in the loop. We don't know what the heck is going on. They keep on whispering about their own past drama and the quote unquote ghosts that haunt the Titans tower and the, and the Titans name. And, uh, it's a shame again. It's a shame. You know, they, they, it completely overshadowed the new Titans. And I feel like that did them a, a huge disservice. Um, let's get past story number four. <laughs> that was really disappointing. Anyway, story number five. And just to be clear, though, in story number four, the two things that are haunting those old Titans were the murder of Aqualad at the hands of Deathstroke and then uh, the situation that happened with Jericho dying as a result of Dick Grayson going to confront Deathstroke. Now, Dick Grayson didn't tell the old Titans the entire story. He led them to believe that he showed up and Jericho was already dead. Now, they felt responsible for Jericho's death because they had been infiltrating themselves into his life, pretending to just be his friends for the purpose of gaining intel on Slade Wilson, on Deathstroke, to try to get to him and to try to get revenge for Aqualad's murder. So for that reason, even though they didn't know the full story, they didn't know that uh, Dick Grayson actually went to confront Deathstroke, and afterwards is when Jericho showed up, got in the way, and got killed, presumably thanks to Dick Grayson. And that's not one that I'm letting slide. I fully blame Jericho's death, at least the death of his body, on Dick Grayson. That was on him. It really was. Um, so that's those are the two main things that are breaking them apart. Aqualad's murder, uh, Jericho's death. So. Moving on to story number five. Five, Hank and Dawn. Oh, so at the start of uh, story, uh, at the start of the season of season two, Hank and Dawn basically are trying to go and live a simple life, like literally just a farm life. Hank is like, I don't know, training horses or something. Uh, they're living in some kind of, you know, farmhouse, ranch sort of thing. Uh, Don is secretly going out in crime fighting. Apparently they have both agreed that they were not going to do crime fighting anymore. Now I understand why in season one, it was established that for them, crime fighting became a way of, uh, a form of, uh, not venting, but detoxing a form of releasing their inner demons because of all the pain they were carrying because his brother died because her mother died tragically in the car accident. Um, because Hank had grown, uh, you know, addicted to drugs and alcohol and then crime fighting became his drug. And because of those reasons, they had decided to no longer crime fight, but Don broke that agreement and she was uh, sneaking around behind, behind Hank's, Hank's back to, uh, you know, put on the costume of Dove and go and crime fight. He finds out. That starts splitting them. Dr. Light is released by Deathstroke. Dr. Light eventually reaches them over where they are living. Uh, Hank has been mentoring this, uh, sponsoring rather, this uh, young guy uh, in Narcotics Anonymous. And in the midst of all that, 
you know, this kid that he's sponsoring, he ends up getting, I don't know, supercharged by Dr. Light's light powers. <laughs> Point is that he goes and knocks on Hank and Dove's door. And when he walks in, he basically light starts coming out his eyes and mouth and nostrils and the kid just explodes. I don't know how that happens. I have no clue how Dr. Light's powers work really, but yeah, that happened. So then they're devastated. And of course they now want to capture Dr. Light and that leads them back to Titan's tower. And uh, Hank starts drinking again eventually. Uh, he ends up breaking up with Dawn. Dawn is heartbroken. She ends up trying to go on her own way. Look, this is by far the most, the single most unnecessary storyline in the entire season. I think Hawk and Dove served a very important purpose in season one. They gave us a lot of backstory. They gave us a lot of context for Dick Grayson. It's almost like they were a mirror for Dick Grayson and for a lot of his inner demons and stuff. I love them in season one. I, I despise them in season two. I really feel like they had no need to appear in the second season of the show. I feel like they could have been reserved for a future season when the Titans needed some backup and they had to call them out of retirement. But I think they should have just gone to that ranch, stayed living in peace. Hank should have stayed recovered. Uh, from his alcoholism, Hawk should have kept her promise, or Dove should have kept her promise and not crime fight anymore. And that's it. <laughs> no Dr. Light supercharging and blowing up their friend. None of that. None of that. It was unnecessary. From, from that point forth, from the point where they decided to retire on, everything that happened with them just felt like complete filler. It Unnecessary use of screen time. I'm not even going to dwell more on it. Uh, story number six was the whole storyline with Starfire. So Starfire, uh, at the end of season one, she starts remembering who she is. Because for the majority of the first season, she had amnesia. She didn't remember at all who she was. She starts remembering who she is at the end of season one. And she realizes that she is uh, Corandir, this princess from another planet. And so we now have to go into this whole storyline with her in season two where she starts losing her powers for some unexplained reason. This guy who she had some kind of romance with in her planet, he ends up traveling over to Earth uh, and tries to get her to go back with him to their home planet because her sister, who is evil, has killed all her their family members and has taken over the planet and named herself Queen and so he captures her, takes her to a ship. She traps him in the ship. She, she runs away. She's uh, trying to reunite with the Titans for a little bit. She does a couple of things here and there, but then she gets right back drawn into the whole thing. Um, and then eventually uh, she decides to go back to her, to her home planet, but the uh, spaceship blows up or something like that. And then in an after credit scene, it's revealed that uh, her sister has now returned. She communicated with her like via satellite through a human being, <laughs> oh, through through this guy who came to get her from her planet. She takes him over somehow and communicates with her through him, but then she actually becomes herself, her sister, Blackfire is her name, and she becomes herself in this after credit scene where she takes over a lady who was grocery shopping with her with her kids. Anyway, um, look, I'm not saying that this storyline shouldn't be explored, okay? 
As a matter of fact, if it's given its proper time and space to be told correctly, the storyline could be great. That could fill up an entire season's worth of stories because in the same way that season one had a lot of supernatural mystical elements to it, and then season two should have been, in my opinion, all focused on Deathstroke, down-to-earth, military, tactical, outsmarting the Titans type of threat. Um, this could occupy an entire season, which is revolving around cosmic threats, right? Because this is this is a threat from another planet. So I fully think that this could stand alone as 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 the main storyline of a season where the the attention of the rest of the Titans is actually placed on Corey and they're trying to help her because now she's you know she's part of the team. But honestly, even until the end of this season, Corey didn't fully feel to me like she was part of this team. She felt like an add-on. She felt like a guest star. She didn't feel like she was actually a core part of the team. And I kept on waiting throughout the entire second season for her to just put this whole uh, home planet thing on hold to just go and be part of the team already. And, it, and I don't feel like it actually happened. She was there for certain moments, but it's almost like her heart wasn't there. So, yeah, um, I just think that this was tossed into an already convoluted season. And it felt like a distraction. That is exactly how it felt. Like a distraction from what were the two primary storylines. The Deathstroke storyline and the Superboy storylines. That's that. Story number seven. I told you guys. A lot of different stories being told in this thing, man. Story number seven I consider to be Jason Todd's story. Now this one didn't bother me too much. Especially because it didn't take up a ton of screen time. But even if it did... Jason Todd was actually introduced as kind of like part of the team. You know, we saw plenty of them in season one, the condition at the beginning of season two for Bruce Wayne to allow Dick Grayson to restart the Titans again and to, you know, go and live in Titans tower in San Francisco for it to be fully funded by Bruce Wayne, et cetera, et cetera, was that he would take on Jason Todd to kind of like polish off, off the rough edges a bit. And so Dick does that. And so Jason Todd, he starts uh, not very successfully, but he starts trying to acclimate himself to the Titans, to Gar, to, um, uh, to, to Rachel, and of course to Dick. And they train together. They have a couple of scenes where they're training together, and, and it's cool. I like that part about it. So even if Jason Todd would have taken more screen time, it still would have been justified in my opinion because he is actually part of the team. He's not one of these old titans that was stealing screen time from where the screen time should have really been, which is the new team, the new blood. So that whole thing happened, right? Um, Jason Todd gets caught by Deathstroke because he and Gar figure out that Rose is Deathstroke's daughter. They don't know that she's initially working with him. They just know that she is his daughter. And they decide, okay, or rather Jason Todd decides uh, you know, that he wants to prove himself to Dick, prove him that, uh, prove to him that he knows what he's doing. So Jason and Gar go and they try to uh, find out where Dr. Light is or where Deathstroke is. 
they battle Dr. Light and they beat Dr. Light, but eventually Deathstroke rolls around and he captures Jason Todd, takes him prisoner. Now, this is a part where we start getting some really serious death in the family vibes, which is a storyline where the Joker in the comics, the Joker kidnaps Jason Todd and he ends up torturing him for like days and days and days. And he ends up beating him with a crowbar and eventually that's where he kills him. And of course, Jason Todd's death is one of the things that haunts Batman for years and years later on. Eventually, that uh, that entire storyline was retconned in the comics, and Jason Todd actually is revealed to still be alive, and he takes on the persona of Red Hood. So, very similar vibes, right? Deathstroke has him. He's like taunting him, torturing him in a way. He's really messing with his mind. Uh, I mentioned before that Connor showed up just in time as Jason Todd was falling from a very tall building and he saves him. He catches him. That was due to the fact that um, uh, Dick Grayson and Corey had shown up to try to rescue Jason. Uh, they were fighting against Deathstroke. Deathstroke overpowers them. In the process, uh, Jason Todd ends up falling off the, the edge and that's when he's re rescued by Connor, which by the way, that was a pretty cool fight between Deathstroke versus um, Corey and Dick Grayson. He beats them. <laughs> okay, this is this is a woman who can like shoot fire from her hands, and this is you know Dick Grayson, the first Robin, trained by Batman himself. And these two people can't take down Deathstroke. It's fantastic. The little things that Deathstroke does in the middle of battle. It's like there is absolutely no movement and no opportunity that he wastes. If he misses with one hand, trust me, the other hand is coming right at you. If he misses with one weapon, there's another weapon pointed right at you. Like he doesn't waste a single instant. And that is very, very Deathstroke. And I loved it. Uh, Jason ends up being saved. He ends up eventually going back to Titan's Tower. He falls in love with Rose, with Deathstroke's daughter. Um, they eventually run away together. They leave team, uh, they leave Titans tower together. Um, they end up crime fighting together. And eventually when he realizes that she's been working for Deathstroke, he feels betrayed by her. He feels like everything that she's told him about loving him is a lie. And he walks out on her. Now he eventually disappears for the majority, uh, for the remainder of the season. And we eventually, we see him all the way at the end when the Teen Titans are saying their farewell to Donna Troy at the airport. And he is off in a corner somewhere in a motorcycle wearing a leather jacket. He basically is there to just pay his, pay his respects from afar. And then he leaves. Dick Grayson is the only one that sees him, the only one that notices him. And of course, leather jacket going solo. Mm, I can't help but think that Titans is basically retelling the story of... Jason Todd, giving us a new spin on how he goes from being Batman's second Robin to becoming the Red Hood. And I really, really hope that it happens. I have zero problems with the death in the family storyline with the Joker not happening. I really don't care. I, I'm already invested enough in this incarnation of Jason Todd that I'm okay with him finding other reasons to lead him into taking on the Red Hood persona. And I would love for him to play a role in the future, maybe in season three, for him to have to be a thing that the Titans have to deal with because now he's gone rogue as Red Hood 
and he's going and doing what Batman doesn't do, which is killing criminals. You know, I would love to see that come to life. We'll have to wait and see if it does. Um, but that's where his storyline ends up. And, and I really love it. I'm invested in Jason Todd. I want to see more of him. Um, I like the fact that he had a, a, a spot to shine during season two. Story number eight, just two more stories left. I'm sorry. I did not interweave all these stories. Blame it on the producers and writers. Story number eight is Gar's story, um, which I kind of hinted at already. But Gar's personal thing, Gar is the only one that remains in Titan's Tower. There's a moment where the old Titans are pissed off at Dick Grayson. They can't believe when they find out that Dick Grayson lied to them and that he was actually there and that he was part of the reason why Jericho ends up getting killed by Deathstroke. Um, they all split up and go their own ways. Even Raven ends up leaving Titan's Tower. Jason Todd and Rose end up going off to do their own thing. And then the only ones left <laughs> in Titan's Tower are Dick, Gar, and uh, a, a comatose Superboy. And then Dick Grayson just comes over <laughs> to, to Gar and tells him, Hey, uh, you're in charge. <laughs> I'm leaving too. And Gar is like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Why are you leaving? How are you going to leave me here alone? I can't do this on my own. And he tells him, no, you got this. Don't worry. This place runs itself. And he leaves him. <laughs> he actually leaves him by himself with the passed out Connor. And this is, of course, what leads to eventually he and Connor getting captured by Cadmus. There is a moment at the end in the last episode of the season where Dick Grayson apologizes, sort of, to him. He tells him, basically, he assumes responsibility. I don't think he actually says the words, I'm sorry. He assumes responsibility for having left him alone. And he acknowledges that because he left him alone, he ended up getting into the issues that he got into, and he got captured by Cadmus. What he doesn't know is the level of torture that this poor kid had to endure because he abandoned him. And look, I got to be honest with you, man. <laughs> By the end of the second season, I'm legitimately pissed off at Dick Grayson. I, 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 don't, get, I don't get this guy's thinking. Um, the Jericho situation, like I said before, I blame him for Jericho's death. I really do. This situation, I blame him for what Gar ended up going through. In the, at the hands of Cadmus, I think that he got sold a bill of goods. Gar did. He was brought in to presumably a safe place, safe house. After being a kid who was wandering around on his own. Yes, he had that whole time that he spent with the Doom Patrol. But he literally left the Doom Patrol, a place where he had some stability and safety. And he left that place to go and follow Dick Grayson. And now Dick Grayson abandons him. And then he has to go through what he went through at Cadmus. That's messed up. That's really messed up. So I'm not going to dwell more on this. Let's go to story number nine, which is Dick Grayson's story. Yay. Um, so, no, no, I don't want to be cynical here. Um, I, I liked a lot of aspects of Dick's story's character development in this in this season. I felt like it took him a little bit long, honestly, to get to the Nightwing thing. I, I think he I think he could have gotten there in a different direction. 
Um, it felt a bit odd where the story had to place him for him to finally arrive at the uh, realization, at the clarity of who he needed to become. And I'm talking about where the story placed him both mentally in his mindset and physically where it placed him. So two things, right? First, let's talk about his mindset. This guy is basically like delusional the entire second season, like literally seeing things. And the, the things that he is seeing is Bruce Wayne. <laughs> so we get to see the real Bruce Wayne in the, I don't know, second episode or so of the season or the first episode, I forget. And that is a real Bruce Wayne. But then from there on, we see Bruce Wayne a ton of times popping up throughout this story. And it is all basically imaginary. It's all inside Dick Grayson's head. And it is still Batman, or now in this case, Bruce Wayne, haunting and mocking and taunting Dick Grayson the whole freaking season. Like, it, it just, it made me question, honestly, it made me question Dick Grayson's sanity. Like, I understand him, you know, recalling certain things that Bruce might have told him, maybe flashbacks of certain things that Bruce told him that hit him the wrong way, that, you know, that that inflicted some lasting emotional or psychological pain. But, man, like, you know, him getting to the point of delusion where he's seeing Bruce Wayne everywhere. It, that got very old very quickly. It was really strange, to be honest. Add, add on to that the fact that we have Bruce Wayne being played by Ian Glenn, like I mentioned before. And as much as I wanted to see Bruce Wayne in the Titan series, this is not the Bruce Wayne that I wanted to see. Ian Glenn, all I could see was his character from Game of Thrones. He didn't have the English accent, but he may as well have because, my God, that man, it's impossible for him to mask his voice in any way. It's impossible for him to really change his voice. He has very peculiar inflections in his tone of voice. He has a very peculiar cadence to, to, to how he speaks. So it was hard. It was very difficult for me to really picture him as Bruce Wayne. And that, it's not only the sound of his voice either. He was too kind in the play in the spots where we see him as Bruce Wayne, like the real one, not the delusions caused by uh, Dick Grayson's mind, but the real Bruce Wayne, he's way too nice to be honest. I mean, anybody who's read the comics, even comics where you deliberately see interactions between Dick Grayson, a grown-up Dick Grayson, the Dick Grayson who was already Nightwing, and Bruce Wayne, all of us who've seen that know that Bruce Wayne is not warm. He's not fatherly. There are moments, there are glimpses of fatherliness. There are glimpses of warmth. But even then, it's warmth in Batman's way, in Bruce Wayne's way. It's not the warmth of a wise old father figure. It's really not. It's really not. And I think we got to see too much of that in this version of Bruce Wayne. It just didn't feel like Bruce Wayne to me. It really didn't. To be honest, one of the most distracting things, and I hate to even say this, but is it's the man's age. Because in this world that Titans is creating, where uh, Dick Grayson was being in his mid-20s, right? At most late 20s. Uh, Batman would be in his 40s, perhaps. 
you know, he's he's not going to be uh, late forties around there. You know, Ian Glenn is 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 in his late fifties. You know that that's a that's a pretty big difference. That's about a decade of difference on where this Bruce Wayne really should be, and he really felt like an older guy. You know, to the point where when I first saw him walk into the scene, I legitimately thought that I was staring that I was looking at this Titans version of Alfred. I thought that they were going to show us. Ian Glenn playing Alfred. And of course, because I already know that the guy has an English accent and all that, I was just expecting an English accent to come out. Hello, Master Grayson. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And I was like, oh, cool. Ian Glenn playing Alfred. I can dig that. Nope. He's playing Bruce Wayne. So, yeah. Anyway, um, imaginary Bruce Wayne was too much. I will say there was this one really funny part. A really funny part and another part that was really cool. The funny part. And again, this is all about imaginary Bruce Wayne. The funny part comes when Dick Grayson goes to visit this one character inside of this kind of uh, club, like a, uh, I don't know, some some kind of music club. And he gets there, and there's some performers uh, on stage. It's a couple of women, I think, dancing and or singing. And uh, while he's there talking to the person that he was there to see, he glances over at the stage. And while these women are dancing, the imaginary Bruce Wayne is on stage and he starts dancing in the same exact way, mimicking the same movements from the Adam West Batman, the, the infamous Adam West Batman dancing scene where he's like doing the whole, you know, John Travolta Pulp Fiction thing with his fingers and whatnot. It was hilarious, man. <laughs> I really got a kick out of that. That was a cool little throwback. Um, and then the really cool moment, the cool moment happened um, further down in the season. So basically what ends up happening is that Dick Grayson turns himself in. He goes over to a train station or an airport. He beats down an officer. And he knows, of course, being number one Batman psychic and a crime fighter and having been a detective in Detroit or whatever city it was that he was in in the first season – he knows that that's going to get him locked up and where he's going to he's going to be locked up. So he gets thrown into prison for assaulting a federal officer. And uh, while in prison, that's where he, basically his story arc takes him towards becoming Nightwing. And there's a really cool scene in that where imaginary Batman inside of his mind while he's sparring by himself, like shadow boxing or shadow sparring by himself in his prison cell, imaginary Bruce Wayne is fighting him in his mind. And that action, that fighting style, that was the only time that I could have believed that that version of Bruce Wayne was actually Batman. They pulled it off. Like the, you know, the, uh, the fighting was dope. Uh, even with that though, I, I still, um, <laughs> I still couldn't fully digest the thought of Ian Glenn being Bruce Wayne. Uh, so yeah, Dick, basically his, uh, his time in prison, he ends up kind of uh, not befriending, but associating with a couple of uh, dudes who were part of a Central American gang. And these guys actually don't uh, believe in the gang anymore. They want to go their own way. They want to get out of there and they want to escape because they're going to get killed by some rival gang members or something like that that are in the prison. Anyway, uh, one night while they're uh, talking with Dick Grayson about all this stuff, he is uh, seeing this dude that's drawing this thing on, on the wall of their cell. And he asks him what that is, and he tells him that it's, uh, it's this uh, character being called Al-Azul, which means blue wing. 
And he says that in their culture, whatever place from Central America it is that they were, that they were from, in their culture, Alasul is this creature that comes down from the heavens and like at night and saves people who are in danger or something along those lines. And so, of course, blue wing, Alasul, you know, the, the symbol that he drew was very reminiscent of the symbol uh, that Nightwing has the iconic symbol that he has running across his chest in his Nightwing suit. And uh, Blue Wing, right? The classic Nightwing is black with blue accents of color. So I thought that that was cool. However, I really feel like the the, the fact of him going to prison and then very soon after that having to break himself out of prison there were news reports in the show of Dick Grayson being in prison. News reports that identified him as a detective in whatever police department. News reports <laughs> that reported his escape from prison. So it felt extremely unnecessary to now put Dick Grayson in a situation where he's an escaped fugitive just for the purpose of having him become Nightwing. Because it sure as heck wasn't for him to atone for what he felt was his crime against Jericho. You know, his doing in, in Jericho's death. It wasn't for that, because otherwise he'd still be in prison. You know, he would have escaped. He would have stayed doing his time. But instead... He ends up escaping, and I understand that in one of his visions, in that vision where he fights imaginary Bruce Wayne, he ends up, imaginary Bruce Wayne, I guess, ends up helping him realize that Jericho was actually, his consciousness was actually inside of Slade Wilson. In the last interaction that Dick Grayson had with Slade Wilson, imaginary Batman takes him back and replays that scene to him and makes him realize that he missed the detail, which was some hand signs, some... Uh, um, um, geez, some uh, sign language that Deathstroke's hand was doing kind of in, invo in an involuntary way. And that is key because Jericho got his throat slashed during an attack against his father's life, against Slade Wilson's life in the past. And uh, due to that, his vocal cords were completely damaged. And so he was a mute. He had to communicate via sign language. So that was a way that he was letting dick no i'm inside here and so what ends up happening is that dick grayson now realizing that jericho was actually still alive in a way his consciousness he breaks himself out of prison because i guess now he's not guilty anymore <laughs> and he and he goes and you know reunites with the titans uh first making a pit stop to 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 you know get hooked up with a brand new suit now before i get to the whole suit thing um very strange, very, very weird choice of writing in Dick Grayson's storyline that they had him very purposely get himself caught, put into prison to then not only help two guys escape, but then escape himself. So now Dick Grayson really has a rap sheet. <laughs> and if this if this doesn't come back around to haunt him, if that's not addressed in, in, in future seasons... That's a huge plot hole. That's a very strange, unnecessary plot hole that they created 
for this character. But anyway, that happened. Um, he goes over to this place uh, that I mentioned in the spoiler-free section, which was Stu's Handmade Shoes. And this was really cool. Dick Grayson walks in. Now, uh, in season one, Dick Grayson burned the Robin suit. And this guy, Stu, the guy who runs that shop, he found out. And apparently... He makes all of Batman's suits, which, you know, that kind of changes the stuff that we know from the comic books and stuff where it's uh, Lucius Fox who makes the suits or he himself, Batman himself and Alfred fabricate the suits. Uh, but in this world of Titans, we now have a new character introduced and in this new group, this new team of people who behind uh, closed doors of Stu's handmade shoes fabricate superhero gear. And uh, he gets there. He uh, Stu basically plays gatekeeper at first. He doesn't want to let him in because he feels like he disgraced his creation by burning it, that Robin suit. And eventually all is forgiven. They walk in. They go through the secret passageway. They walk into a very high-tech lab type of place where an entire crew is building all sorts of superhero gear. And uh, then Stu says something that I personally did not like, and that's that uh, he says, Master Wayne thought that you'd be coming. And so he shows them a suit that Bruce Wayne had made for him. Now, uh, maybe it's because of the fact that I spent an entire season seeing Dick Grayson apparently losing his damn mind seeing visions of Bruce Wayne following him around all over town, making very weird decisions, like getting himself caught to pay for a crime and then helping two dudes break out of prison and then breaking out of prison himself, becoming a fugitive, gaining a criminal record. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's because of all that and especially all the time that, that we spent with Bruce Wayne, that hearing here, Stu mentioned that Bruce Wayne is the one that's going to provide Dick Grayson with his Nightwing suit, it felt like a slap across the face to all the story that's been told about Dick Grayson in the series so far, all the way from season one. His entire character plot, character story, has been to walk away peacefully from Batman's shadow without being tossed in the opposite direction, without being tossed into embracing his demons, Without hating Batman, without hating Bruce Wayne, this has been his story arc. It's independence, but independence in a healthy manner. And so I feel like nothing would have been more satisfying than to see him deliver the specs of the suit that he wanted to Stu and then have Stu's team create this thing for him. But instead we get a suit that is made by Bruce Wayne already for him. That is very disappointing. Um, now he does apparently end up giving them some, uh, additions in the form of the whole thing that was inspired by Alasun while he was in prison. And so they add the whole blue accent to it to, uh, give us that iconic Nightwing look. And, uh, and don't get me wrong. The suit is sick. The suit is really, really dope. I really like it. I love the armory feel to it. I love the design of the thing. He looks great in it. It looked fantastic. I just wish that the entire thing would have come out of the mind of Dick Grayson and not Bruce Wayne. It just goes contrary to the entire story arc and development of this character. 
that's enough on that point. Um, let me talk really quick about the ending of this show. The ending of the show, it basically ties off. It concludes two storylines. One is the whole Cadmus thing with Superboy and Gar. The other is Deathstroke. Now, if it hasn't made, been made clear yet, based on this entire review, I think that Deathstroke should have been the final threat of this entire season. I think that the Cadmus threat, especially having a brainwashed Superboy that obeys their orders, I think that is a phenomenal threat, okay? I think it's a great threat, and I almost think that that storyline should have been told in its own season. Maybe the Cadmus and, and Superboy storyline should have been the story that was that dominated season two completely. You know, maybe that all of it should have revolved around that. Maybe what would have forced the Titans to finally work as a cohesive unit was the threat of basically this Superman-like dude being controlled by the wrong people. And that should have been the main plot of the entire thing. Throw out all this stuff with the old Titans, all that drama, or resolve it in the second, latest, the third episode, and then introduce Superboy, introduce Cadmus, uh, give us that entire story. Let that be the threat. Let them have the challenge of freeing Connor from the brainwashing after a hard battle against them until they finally free the guy. And then not only is Cadmus losing their main weapon, but they are gaining one of their heaviest hitters for the Titans team. But instead what we get is Deathstroke's storyline being concluded in a very anticlimactic way, in a way that I feel did not pay homage to the quality of villain that the, the entire season built up Slade Wilson to be. I think that uh, basically to describe the scene, some of the women from the Titans team are in an SUV. We've just had this scene happen where, you know, they're getting kind of, you know, rah-rah about them not needing, you know, uh, Dick or anybody else. And they're trying to, you know, take matters into their own hands. They're going after uh, Cadmus and they're going to try to save Gar and Connor taking matters into their own hands. Again, not waiting for Dick to show up, not waiting for any of the guys to show up. They had this weird scene where they reunite with whom appears to be Bruce Wayne. Uh, Corey drops this comment after Bruce Wayne leaves this diner that they meet up in. Uh, and she's like, did Bruce Wayne just call us all the way out here in the middle of nowhere to mansplain to us why we should get the team the Titans back together. So out of this energy, you know, this empowerment energy that is, that is going on, um, they get into that SUV. They're headed over to try to rescue Gar and Connor. Suddenly, boom, shot breaks out. Deathstroke meets them head on, walking on the road right in front of them. They stop the car. Deathstroke unleashes a you know a volley of fire on the SUV, and they completely paralyze. <laughs> the only one that steps out of the car to try to do something is Corey, and then she gets shot, and then she realizes, oh, my God, I'm bleeding for the first time in my life or whatever because she's losing her powers, and then she just ducks right back into the van, and then Rachel is healing her, and then we basically got four women who are highly skilled. One of them is essentially Wonder Woman, and all four of them are hiding from uh, Deathstroke's bullets in the car, uh, like damsels in distress. That didn't make sense at all. Honestly, it did not make sense at all. I felt like it, it was counter to that 
energy that was uh, starting to build between these four uh, these four women, and it, it didn't. I feel like it was a disservice to to, to them as as four female characters who decided to team up to go and take matters into their own hands. Who ends up saving the day? The guy. So I, I don't know. Excuse me for you know jumping at the feminist bandwagon here, but uh, I, I feel like again it was counter to the energy that was building up with them for Dick to be the one that comes and saves them. And it's unfortunate because that's the first reveal that we have of him in the actual suit, in the new Nightwing suit. So it's dope. The fact that he shows up, he's in the Nightwing gear. All four of them are like, is that Dick? Uh, and then, you know, he uh, basically saves the day. But yeah, again, that whole scene in the SUV with the four women, it really didn't make sense to me. I felt like they should have kicked some butt. They should have, you know, figured out a way to get out of the car and taken on Deathstroke, man. Whatever. I digress. Um, Dick Grayson shows up and suddenly Deathstroke stops shooting. Why? <laughs> okay, I get. All right, the dude has a new suit. I get it. But uh, why stop shooting, man? He's clearly not on your side. You quickly recognize him to be Dick Grayson. Why the heck are you going to stop shooting all of a sudden just because the dude lands on top of the SUV? That really didn't make sense. Uh, and what didn't make even more sense is the fact that Dick Grayson goes and he faces off against them. Then Rose, Slade Wilson's daughter, shows up and she joins the fight. At first, you don't know if she's going to join on the side of Slade Wilson or on the side of Dick Grayson. Soon enough, we find out that it's she's fighting with Dick Grayson against Deathstroke. And in the middle of the fight, the first thing that comes to mind is, ah, Deathstroke already took out Dick Grayson and Starfire. There's no way in heck that he's going to be taken down by Rose, whom he trained himself, meaning that he would know all of her weaknesses in battle, and by Dick Grayson, who is not a superpowered being, and he already took out before while fighting alongside a superpowered being. I figure there's no way this is going to end in Deathstroke's defeat, right? The rest of the team is going to need to show up. Something's going to need to happen. They're going to the women in the SUV are going to have to come out. You know, <laughs> get some heavy hitting going on to be able to take Deathstroke down. But no, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Deathstroke was taken down by the daughter that he trained and by Dick Grayson. Uh, I suppose that there's a little bit of poetic justice in that because of the fact that it was someone that he trained in the same way that Dick Grayson was trained by Batman. And now these two trainees have surpassed a master. I don't know. I, I, I just, it, it was so, it was so disappointing, which by the way, it seems like he is dead. They essentially killed him for all intents and purposes, unless later on we discover that whatever super soldier stuff they did to him ends up causing him to come back to life. I really hope so. Cause I really love this version of Deathstroke. I'd be really disappointed if this was it for him. Uh, but yeah, very anticlimactic. They didn't do justice to this character, to this portrayal of Deathstroke. Um, very disappointing end to him. And then to add on to the disappointment is the final battle. So Cadmus shows up in this carnival. They're going to unleash Gar in his tiger form. Uh, Gar is going to start, you know, slashing people and eating people. And in the middle of that, they're going to paint themselves as the good guys by releasing Connor, Superboy, as their own weapon to take down metahumans like Gar, who are a threat to humans. So that goes wrong. 
eventually the Titans show up and they start fighting Connor. Now, <sighs> again, let's keep in mind, this is a clone of Superman. He's half Superman, but we already know that this dude has many of the capabilities of Superman, okay? Um, the people fighting him are Starfire, who has no more powers, uh, Dove, <laughs> who shouldn't be in this season at all, Donna Troy, and then eventually Hank shows up too and tries to sucker punch him. Uh, the only person who could really stand a chance against this dude is Donna Troy. And that's because she has, again, the power of an Amazonian. She does give him a good fight. Um, but he kind of takes her out and then eventually has to turn his attention over to Dick Grayson. Because Dick Grayson shows up, throws a, a, a smoke grenade. Connor instinctively catches it right away before it can even hit him. The grenade goes off, Batman versus Superman style. And uh, then I don't know where Connor goes, to be honest, because suddenly Dick Grayson appears what, what seems to be in the same spot that he was standing, and Connor's like far behind for some reason. That was really weird. But then, of course, they're looking at him. Is that Dick? Again. And uh, eventually what ends up happening is that um, Rachel shows up finally. She ends up trapping Connor in some kind of magic something. And uh, Dick Grayson connects to her, and I guess he travels inside of Connor's head. And inside of Connor's consciousness, Connor is basically trapped inside this very dark room. He's kind of in fetal position in the corner. He's crying. He's whimpering. He's scared. Uh, I can't see the light. I can't see the light. You know, this woman is, you know, controlling me, whatever. She's telling me to kill you guys. And then uh, Dick Grayson basically says, oh, you can't see the light? Okay, come here. And then he starts breaking some drywall <laughs> and letting some light in. And uh, look, if we would have gotten a glimpse of the process of breaking Connor's mind and trapping him inside this mental construct of this dark room, in the same way that we got to see the process that they uh, put Gar through, at Cadmus, if we would have gotten a glimpse into what was going on inside of his mind and how he ended up in his own consciousness inside this room, maybe it would have held a little bit more weight when Dick finally comes and breaks down the drywall and the light comes through. But we never got any of that. We didn't get to see at all how it is that they broke him, how it is that they conditioned him. So uh, this scene kind of comes out of nowhere and it has very little meaning, to be honest, uh, because it didn't have a lot of, it didn't have any buildup. And I wish that it would have. I really felt like this could have been like this was a uh, could have played out as a much more special moment as well if maybe the construct that they built into Connor's mind was more complex a room that was easy to break some drywall to let light in felt too easy I feel like I don't know maybe it could have been a labyrinth maybe it could have been something that was menacing or trapping or confusing in nature and then Dick had to actually Go through an odyssey with this guy. Team up with him. Both of their both of their consciousnesses. Uh, team up. Work together to escape this construct that they built in his mind. We already have a precedent for that kind of thing. There was an entire episode in season one dedicated to a fantasy scenario inside Dick Grayson's mind where he went and had to capture Batman. So it's not like this show hasn't done something like that before. I feel like 
to build the relationship between Dick and Connor, it could have been much more meaningful to dedicate more time to it. But God forbid, you know, we uh, lose that episode with Hawk and Dove. Uh, you know, God forbid, you know, we, we needed that, I guess. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting salty. I'm getting salty. I'm sorry, folks. I'm sorry. Uh, I just, I love this show too much. I love the world that the show has created. I love season one too much. I, I went into season two caring so much about this story. Um, and, and so these, some of these choices were just disappointing, but anyway, he helps, uh, Connor break out of that whole mental, mental construct thing. Uh, he frees him. He's, He's, he has light again inside of him or whatever. And then he uh, helps take down Cadmus. And everything seems like it's going fine. And then suddenly something explodes in this tower that was holding some lights. And then the tower falls. Donna Troy catches it, saves Dove, who I still uphold that she shouldn't have been there at all. But she saves her from the falling thing and a mom and her daughter. And uh, then she gets electrocuted with the thing, with the lights or whatever, the cords that are wrapped around this metal post or whatever it was. And then she dies. <laughs> Donna Troy dies. And for the life of me, I can't justify the need for that. I really can't, man. First of all, I mean, I don't know, man. Will some will a woman from Temescira truly die from being electrocuted i mean what's i don't know it seemed it seemed like too uh too simple a thing to kill somebody that strong but for all intents and purposes they got rid of the character <laughs> um so donna troy is dead and that is where they're bidding farewell to her as her body is being loaded onto the plane headed to Temascara. That's where we see Jason Todd peeking out of the corner in his motorcycle and his leather jacket. All of the Titans are paying their respects as uh, Donna Troy is being, her body is being flown out of our world. And um, then basically we see a dinner happen between all the Titans, old and new, it seems. And uh, wait, is it old and new? Maybe not. Maybe Hawk and Dove weren't there. I can't even remember at this point. But the all the new ones were definitely there. And Bruce Wayne was there as well. <clears throat> um, Bruce Wayne was, he gives a toast. Then as they're, you know, starting to eat and enjoy. And, you know, Connor's there and Gar is there. Everybody's there. Uh, as they're doing their, their, you know, as they're eating their dinner and enjoying their time, suddenly a, a report comes on the TV or something like that that says that there's an attack going on in San Francisco, and uh, they suddenly stare at each other. You know, what do we do? And then I forget who it was. It may have been Bruce Wayne. I forget who it was exactly, but somebody says, you know, or somebody just gets up, wipes their mouth, puts their uh, napkin on the table, and walks out to suit up. And then the last thing we see is, you know, all the Titans kind of walking as a team going out to take on whatever threat it was. And then the after credit scene was uh, what I already mentioned of Starfire's sister, Blackfire, taking over the lady who was grocery shopping uh, and assuming her actual form. And so now she is on Earth and she is presumably about to go hunting for her sister. That's season two, folks. That is season two. Um... I hope that I was able to give uh, enough of a picture, paint enough of a picture of the various storylines that were happening. Like I said before, I feel like this this season 
um, should have had Deathstroke as its main villain. Maybe Cadmus as its main villain. Leave Deathstroke for season three. Um, too much time wasted on the old Titans and their drama. Hawk and Dove should not have been in this season, in my opinion. The course that Dick Grayson took to arrive at becoming Nightwing was a little bit odd. The fact that Batman was the one that ended up giving him his new suit, essentially. I felt that that was a disservice to his character development. I think that uh, more attention should have been paid to the new Titans in this season. Having said all that, I enjoyed this season, especially the second half of it. I loved that Connor episode. I loved the Connor character. I loved the, the, the duality within him, those two personas, identities, and even memories fighting inside of him, the memories of Clark Kent and the memories of Lex Luthor. I loved Deathstroke to death. I think that he should have been given a much more monumental ending in this season that did not that shouldn't have concluded with his death, especially at the hands of two non-superpowered people. Uh, I love Nightwing's suit. I love uh, the introduction of Stu's handmade shoes as this front for a superhero gear and armor development place. I love Jason Todd's character. Uh, development, his entire story arc. Uh, I overall love the entire world that season two continued to build for us of the DC universe. I still consider this show to be from what is currently out, what is currently still in production. I consider it the best thing out there as far as live action superhero shows. I think that the CW superhero shows pale in comparison to what the show achieves um, visually, story-wise, character-wise. The grittiness and the gravitas of this entire world that they that they've built. I absolutely love the fact that this show doesn't have to retell or tell from scratch all the story arcs, origin stories of the heroes and the villains. I love that this show drops us right into a pre-existing world where all the events that we're all already familiar with in the DC universe have already happened. And we can now play within that world and pull characters from all different continuities and just build and build and build and, and make, a, make, make the show truly exciting because we're not encountering a villain for the very first time uh, every other episode and having to like name villains, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I love this show as a whole season one, season two. I love them. Uh, I, I, I want more of this show, this show. I can understand why this show is truly keeping the DC universe app alive. This show is to the DC universe app. What the Mandalorian is to Disney plus right now. I feel, um, and those are my thoughts, guys. If there's anything that I missed, if there are any opinions that you guys have that are contrary to mine, whatever it is, I'd love to hear about it, guys. Uh, you can uh, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter where we can be found at G101podcast. Please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We're doing a lot of different content, a lot of different uh, properties, and a lot of different platforms that we're going to be reviewing. Um, this stuff is only going to keep on getting better and better, guys. The podcast, we're learning as we go. Uh, we're improving, and we would love your input to improve even more. If you have any advice, any input, any observations, we'd love to hear your opinions. 
write us a review on Apple iTunes if you can. Uh, at the very least, please leave us a rating. A five-star rating would be incredible. It would help us to get in front of more listeners. Uh, and please remember, if you do love this show, share it with somebody. You've got somebody in your life that is a geek at heart, somebody that loves all this pop culture stuff. Let them know about the podcast. It's a, a great thing to join in conversation with fellow geeks. And uh, those geeks out there who are listening know what I'm talking about. Guys, until the next episode, thank you so, so much for listening. Peace out. Game over.